gospel. We're in chapter 19 today. Last week we did part one of uh, the cross of Christ. Why did Jesus go to the cross? What was the cause of that? We, we looked at that last week. This week we're looking at what he accomplished on the cross. And then after this we only have two more weeks in John's gospel. And I was thinking about it this week as I was preparing. Um, our, our, I, don't, like, I don't know what's happened in your life since we started John's gospel. Have you thought about that? Like our daughter was, I think, just under four months old, and she's just over a year and a half now. So like her whole life, she's, we've been in John's gospel, basically. <laughs> so if you think about it that way, it's a little, little uh, crazy, isn't it? Um, I hope it's been a blessing for you. Um, I know it certainly has been a blessing for me, maybe most of all, to get to soak up and study and, 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 and learn um, about this gospel as I've been uh, blessed with the privilege and opportunity to teach it to you um, but what's happened in your life since we've started John's gospel? I'd encourage you this week to reflect, God, what have you done in my life since at church we, we've been in this book for about a year and a half? What have you done in that year and a half, and how have you used your word? How have you used John's gospel to uh, help me in life, to grow me, to help me to know you more, to help me to be more faithful in what you've called me to be. Sometimes God kind of works slowly over time, and it's easy for us to just kind of glide by and, 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 and not see what he's doing. I'd encourage you to take a step back and reflect on that. Um, we are going to get into Proverbs next, and I think that will be hopefully a um, welcome study for everybody who's uh, we've been, you know, working through John's gospel, and there's some heavy stuff in John's gospel, and a lot of um, theology, a lot of exposition, a lot of gospel, a lot of dense stuff. I hope it has been helpful for you, but uh, I think uh, having some intensely practical wisdom from God's word, all centered around Christ, but intensely practical wisdom, I think that'll be a bit refreshing for us. And we're praying in the fall that as we continue to grow and the Lord continues to add to us, uh, that that will be helpful for those who God brings to, uh, to our church as well. So be looking forward for that, and I'd ask you to, um, as well, you can pray for that series. Um, as we go through these practical issues, we're going to be confronted with what God says about a lot of things, um, as we always are, but, but when we look at practical topics in Proverbs, um, some of those can hit close to home, and so I'd ask for you to be praying for that series and for the Lord to work in that series in the hearts of his people here at Union Church. Um, so some good things to look forward to, um, but let's get started in our study this morning. John chapter 19. I'm going to read uh, a lot of scripture again. I'm going to read for us from verse 17 to verse 37. So you can follow along there in your Bible. John chapter 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Aramaic, is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus in between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, the three main languages of the Mediterranean world. And so the chief priest said to the Jews and to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, 
one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for it. We'll gamble over it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and he held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. At once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Exodus twelve forty six. not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture, Zechariah twelve ten. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Jesus had been looking forward to this hour his whole life, and now he has been crucified, and his life has been stamped out. Prior to this, he was getting whapped between a series of trials, religious trials, state trial, religious trial, state trial, back and forth, back and forth. He then goes and gets flogged. John says, were scourged. He was whipped mercilessly. Many of you have heard that Jesus was only whipped 39 times because the Romans didn't want to go past that 40 mark. That's not true. Romans had no such limitations. We don't know how many times he was whipped. It could have easily been many more than 40. He was bleeding. He was battered. His skin was flayed open. Massive blood loss. Extreme dehydration, hunger, sleeplessness, not to mention all the shame and mockery. All of this concentrated into one morning. That's what our Lord went through. But as brutal and as graphic and horrifying as the physical part of the crucifixion was, the spiritual was even worse. The spiritual suffering was far greater. Jesus in another gospel is recorded to cry out to the Father and say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off. He's bearing the sin of man. The scripture that Noah read earlier, God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That was the most terrifying, painful part. That was the part that was giving him most anguish and turmoil and pain. Becoming sin for you and I. 
Last week, we, we examined why Jesus did that. What, why did Jesus do that? And he did it out of love. His love is what caused him to go to the cross. We looked at a lot of verses on that, but I'll just give you one that you'll recall. John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave. God first loved and then he gave. Remember, God's not up in heaven really angry at us and just waiting to pour his vengeance out. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'll fix the problem. And so you won't be mad. And God says, okay, well, you fix it. So I'm not mad. That's not how it worked at all. God certainly has righteous anger and indignation, but he also has love for lost and sinful and fallen and rebellious people. And in his love, he sends his son. The love of God is what caused the cross. But this week, we're going to look at what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. John 19, 30. Possibly the three most important words ever spoken. Jesus says them on the cross. It is finished. If you're not good at memorizing scripture, you say, gosh, I just, I don't, I'm not good at it. Got a bad memory. I can't do that sort of thing. You can memorize those three words. It is finished. John 19.30. Three of the most important words ever spoken. But what we want to answer today is what is finished? What is finished? What exactly did Jesus accomplish on the cross? What did he do there? And why is this the best news that we could ever know? That's what we're going to examine today as we look at part two of the cross of Christ. And we want to start with a first point to consider. On the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus goes to the cross out of love. He did not have to save us. He chose to. In love, he chose to. He's not obligated to save anybody. In love, he desires to. God is love. We all know that verse, don't we? 1 John, for God is love. And in love, he desires and chooses to save while God is love and his love causes him to go to the cross, God is also holy. While God is love and his love causes him to go to the cross, God is also just. While God is love and his love causes him to go to the cross, he's also righteous. He is love, but he's also just. He's also holy and he's also righteous. Perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. God's love causes him to go to the cross, but God's justice makes the cross necessary. God's love causes him to go to the cross, but his justice makes the cross necessary. You and I have sinned against God. You, me, and everybody who's ever lived has sinned against God. We are sinners before God. We have violated his commandments. We have dishonored his person. The holy, righteous, just, creator, king, Lord, we have violated him. As a result, God has just, righteous, holy wrath towards sin. And for salvation to be accomplished, for you and I to be connected again to God, that wrath must be satisfied. 
God has wrath towards sin for us to be saved. For that to be accomplished, God's wrath must be satisfied. It must be satisfied. It must be taken care of. His wrath must go from being over us to not over us. It must be removed from us. And on the cross, this is exactly what Jesus does. On the cross, Jesus satisfies God's wrath. I know that this is not popular. I know that some of you sitting here may be just bristling hearing the word wrath and God in the same sentence. I know that it's, it's not sexy to talk about God's judgment and his indignation and how he feels about sin. I'm well aware of that. And yet when we open scripture, this is exactly what we find. Yes, God is love. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he is gracious. He's also holy. And he does have wrath for sin. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That we, that we press and push and kick against the truth. And we do what we want to do. We said. I don't care what God wants. I don't care what's true. I want to do what I want to do. And God's wrath is revealed against that. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I've never seen that verse on a coffee mug. That when we have hard and impenitent hearts towards God... We don't care about him, we don't honor him, we don't love him, we don't cherish him, we don't want to be with him or near him, or want him, we don't want him intervening in our life at all because we're very autonomous and free and capable and smart and we can drive our own ship, we're just fine without God, we just want some blessing when we need it, but we don't really need God to meddle in our affairs. That When we do that, we're storing up wrath. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This, this is what the Bible says. We cannot open up Scripture unless we do some really weird origami with it. We cannot open up Scripture and not see what it says about God. This is part of God's character and his nature. And for us to ignore it would be tantamount to fulfilling what Paul's talking about in Romans 1 and 2. We can't just do whatever we want and get away with it. That's unfaithful, unjust. It's not being a true or good representative of God. I was reading a book this week, and the pastor who wrote the book, he said that he was on a panel one time with another man, and they were being asked questions, and the other man on the panel with him, they are talking about the character and nature of God, I think, and the other man on the panel with him was saying, well, here's how I like to think about God. I like to think that God is loving, but he's not too meddling in our affairs, that he's very kind, that he's very gracious, that he has convictions, he, he feels strongly about things, but, but he never gets angry if we disagree with him. That's how I like to think about God. And the author of the book who is on the panel with this guy says, well, Jim, thank you for telling us about you. But we would like to hear about God. So I can't get up here and 
just tell you how I feel about God or tell you what I think you may want to hear about God or just avoid certain parts of Scripture in an effort to be liked or to soften the blow. This is what Scripture says about God. And the reason we have to talk about this, one of the reasons, aside from the fact that it's simply in there, is that if we don't understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we're never going to cherish the cross. If we don't understand the fact that, yes, God has wrath, but Jesus died to pay the penalty of that wrath, Jesus died for it. If we don't think the wrath is real, then what's the point of his death? Yes, his, his, his wrath, church, is very real. And yes, Jesus died to satisfy all of it. The message of the cross has always been challenging for people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that some people think it's foolish. It's the wisdom of God, but some people think it's foolish. Some people find it difficult, like a stumbling block. And some people just find it flat out offensive. It's always been difficult. If you're here this morning and you struggle with what we're talking about, know that you're not alone. Know that you're not alone. The message has always been difficult. And yet, if we soften our hearts and receive his word, if we trust God and not ourselves, if we trust his truth and not just how we feel, I promise it will change your life. It will change your life. In addition, I've had this question on this topic asked of me over the years many times. Why did Jesus have to suffer at all? All of this seems very brutal and horrific, and I'm trying to understand God has wrath and all this, but why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't his wrath just be satisfied that way? Why couldn't he just say, you're forgiven? It's not a bad question. It's fair to think through and ask. But I would just say this, even in a human relationship, forgiveness always requires some form of suffering. Forgiveness always requires suffering. I want you to think through this with me. If you're wronged by somebody, somebody wrongs you, hurts you, you basically have two options. Number one, you make them pay for it. You might say mean things to them, call them names. You might just withhold love, withhold blessing. Maybe you'll give them the silent treatment. Anyone ever experienced the silent treatment? It seems harmless, but it's suffering. It's a form of suffering. Somebody wrongs you, the first option is to make them pay for it. The second option is to say, I'm not going to take revenge. I want to forgive you. And so I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. When every fiber of your being wants them to pay for what they've done and you say, I'm not going to give in to that, I'm going to forgive. That's a form of suffering. We as fallen human beings, we can't even forgive each other without suffering. And we're sinners. Like, Someone sinned against us, and we have to suffer to forgive them, and we've sinned against others too. One small slight or wrong or slander against us, and we have to suffer to forgive. 
If that's true with humans, think about how much God has to suffer to forgive us. One wrong against us, we suffer to forgive. How about infinite wrong against God who's never done wrong, who's never sinned against anybody, who's done nothing but be good and just and merciful and kind and gracious? Well, for God to forgive, that takes real suffering. That's why Jesus has to suffer. For you and I, we've been, we've been storing up, piling up a mountain of sin our whole lives against God. We've been breaking his commandments. We've been hardening our hearts. We've been sinning, doing things we shouldn't do. We've been sinning, doing things, not doing what we should do, rather. We've been loving things before him and ahead of him and above him. This is not... Sin against one another, as bad as that would be, this is sin against a holy, good, loving, kind, merciful God, against the infinite God, the king of the universe, creator God. You might be sitting here thinking, well, I, I've, never, I've never sinned against God. I've done some wrong things, I'm not perfect, but I've never sinned against God. I mean, I've never... I've, I've never thought, God, I want to harm you and I'm going to sin against you. I've never sinned against God. I would just say, well, ignoring God and denying God and pretending he doesn't exist may be the worst of all. We've all sinned against God. and We've all been amassing penalty for our whole lives. But listen, friends, in love, in love, in deep, true, real, infinite love, Jesus goes to the cross And he suffers, and he dies to pay the penalty for you and I. Heard a story recently of a young woman who was speeding, going super fast in a place where speeding is a really big deal. She was ticketed. She had to appear in court. The fine was was big for a speeding ticket, five or six hundred bucks. And she's standing before the judge. She says... Yes, I'm guilty. He says, plead guilty or not guilty? She says, I'm, I'm guilty. I did it. I realize I did it. Didn't care at the time, but I realize I'm guilty. And he hammers his gavel down, guilty. But then he steps off of his bench and he takes off his judicial robe and he walks to the other side of the fence, the wall, the, the gate, And he stands next to this gal, and he takes out his checkbook, and he pays the fine for her. Why in the world would he do that? Because he was her father. You see, that's a small picture of what Jesus does for us. The judge could not have said, well, I'm your father, so let's just forget about this. That wouldn't be just, would it? Wouldn't be just at all. But in love... His justice is satisfied. In love, he comes down from his bench. He takes off his judicial robes, just like Jesus, takes off his royal robes, comes down from heaven, and pays the penalty in our place, a penalty that we could never pay. Justice is satisfied. The requirements of the law are met all out of love. He pays it for us. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He pays the penalty that we could never pay. All the sin that you've ever committed, all the thoughts 
all the motives, deeds, misplaced priorities, your misplaced, disordered loves, all your ignoring of God, self-centeredness, all of our sin is satisfied on the cross. There is not one sin that you have committed or that you will ever commit that is not paid for on the cross if you're in Christ. All of it, all of it, every single one is satisfied in Jesus' death. All the demands of the law are met and satisfied when we look to Jesus in faith. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation for our sins. That means he took our sins. That means satisfaction. He satisfied God's wrath. He himself took our sins. That's love. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And we're rescued, friends. We're saved. Our sins are paid for. All of it is met. On the cross, Jesus looked to God and he said, I will satisfy the penalty for sin. I will absorb your wrath for our people. As a result, then, Jesus looks to his people. He looks to us. And he says, I've satisfied the penalty, and now you are set free from sin. I've satisfied the penalty for sin, and now you are set free from sin. The first point is on the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God. Number two, on the cross, Jesus redeems man from sin. He redeems man from sin. By nature, we... We don't merely commit acts of sin that are somehow disconnected or separate from our nature, from our person, who we are. Now, sin has affected our, our whole person. It's not just acts we commit outside of ourselves; it's who we are. We are in bondage to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus says it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave to sin. So I don't like that language. Take it up with Jesus. He's the one who said it. And if he who practices sin is a slave to sin, that means by nature we are all slaves to sin. See, here's a phrase for you to keep in mind. We're not sinners because we sin. We're not sinners because we do bad things. We sin because we're sinners. It comes from the heart. It comes from the heart. It comes from who we already are. I mean, I promise you, I do not, I do never once ever have I put my children through a, a class on how to be disobedient. But they are experts at it sometimes. I have never put my kids through a class on how to be selfish but it seems to just come out of their very nature. You say, my kids aren't like that. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And nobody has to teach them. It's already there. It's already there. We sin because we're sinners. We sin because it comes from our sinful hearts. So we are in bondage to sin. Romans 5, Paul tells us that Adam... The first man, the man that God created, he created him good, he created him perfect, he created him in communion with himself. 
And he, Paul, Paul in Romans 5 says that Adam was like the representative of the human race. To use biblical language, Adam was our covenant head. Adam represented all of humanity. It's like when, if America sends a team to the Olympics, that team in the Olympics represents America. If the team loses, America loses. If the team wins, America wins. It's a little bit like that. Adam represents humanity. But Adam in the garden, instead of obeying God, he disobeyed God. Instead of wanting to be in communion with God, he, he, he said no to God. Instead of listening to what God said and seeing the wisdom and love of God, he decided to choose for himself what was right and wrong, and he did what he wanted and not what God wanted. And as a result, slavery ensued. Slavery to sin ensued. Romans 5.12 says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came through Adam, death through sin, and all men now die because all men sin. That's how the problem started. That's how the slavery started. We know that the wages of sin is death. All who are in Adam are in sin. All who are in sin are in death, enslaved to sin. Now listen, on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty of death in our place. And on the cross, Jesus purchases and redeems us from sin. He actually takes us out. To redeem just means to buy back. It means to buy back. He takes us out of the family of Adam and he puts us in the family of God. He pays the penalty, okay, so the wrath is averted, but it doesn't end there. The wrath is averted, but then now that the wrath is averted, Jesus goes to us in slavery, and he actually removes us from slavery to sin. He takes us out. He redeems us. He buys us back. He paid all that was necessary. The penalty of sin is no longer over us. Therefore, sin has no power over us. Christ removes us, redeems us, buys us from Slavery. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin. Through the cross, we're united to Christ, and we are no longer under the power of sin. You might ask, okay, what, what does this mean exactly? Because sin seems pretty powerful still. What does this mean for me? Here's what it means. In Jesus, sin is no longer your master. We could boil it down as simple as possible. If you're in Christ, sin is no longer your master. It has no power over you. It has no power over you if you're in Christ. Your identity is no longer sinner in Adam, but forgiven in Christ. But sin feels pretty powerful still. Have you ever thought that? Does sin have a grip on your life? Do you ever struggle with sin? You might be thinking, Aaron, I struggled with sin this morning. Yeah, I mean, I blew up in the car on the way here this morning. You know, I'm in the parking lot trying to find a spot, and I can't find one, and I'm just getting super frustrated, and the kids there are just driving me crazy, and whatever the thing is. I'm struggling with sin right now. So what do you mean the power of sin is gone? How does that make sense? 
And I would first empathize with you. Yes, sin is still very much real and active, but I want to make a distinction for us. The presence of sin is still a looming reality. The presence of sin is still a looming reality in our flesh. You know, we still have fallen, corrupted bodies in our flesh. The presence of sin is still a reality. One day we'll be glorified. One day our, our earthly bodies will become heavenly bodies. One day all of it will be purged out. The presence of sin is still here until then. But the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken. I want us to understand the difference. Romans 6, 11 through 14 I'm going to read it for us briefly. It says this. You must also consider yourselves, this is for Christians, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members as instruments for righteousness. For sin, listen, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The presence of sin is still here, but here's what Paul says. You need to understand who you are in Christ. It doesn't have any power. It doesn't have any dominion. It doesn't have any ownership. It's not who you are anymore. It's not who you are. Understand, consider, reckon, the old translations say, believe, preach to yourself this fact Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yes, the presence is still here, but friend, let me encourage you. You're new. If you're a Christian, you're new in Jesus, set free from sin. So act like it. Act like it. Act consistently with who you are. Act consistently with who you are. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says this to the Corinthian church. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. Now but listen to what he says here. None of those people will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Sinners, revilers, God-haters, fill in whatever your thing was. Such were some of us. You still have temptations? I'm sure you do, if you're like me. But it's who we were. No longer are. No longer are. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Dead to sin and alive to God. On the cross, Jesus looks at the Father and says, In love you sent me, and in love I willingly pay the penalty for sin. And I will satisfy your wrath, and I will turn it away from our people. And then on the cross, Jesus looks at us and says, Your penalty is paid. Verse 30, It is finished. You are redeemed. You are freed from slavery to sin. This church is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. 
but he accomplishes more than that. He goes further. He doesn't just forgive, but he reconciles. God doesn't just not count sin against us, but further, he desires to be with us. On the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus redeemed us from slavery to sin. And lastly, on the cross, Jesus reconciles man to God. Jesus reconciles man to God. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Why is sin our biggest problem? Why is it our biggest problem? Because it alienates us from God. That's why it's our biggest problem. Say, well, sin's bad for us, and it's not good, and it it ruins our lives. All that's very, very true. The the main reason, though, that it's our biggest problem is because it alienates us from God. It cuts us off from true joy, true happiness, true love, true purpose. It cuts us off from God. That's why sin is our biggest problem. And on the cross, Jesus accomplished every single thing necessary to bring us back to God. It is finished. And he does so at infinite cost, his own life, the life of God. And he does so all out of love. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. He doesn't just forgive us and say, go ahead, live your life. He forgives us and then brings us into his very family. He brings us into his family. That's reconciliation. God, Christ, rather, on the cross, reconciles man to God. God doesn't just have an obligatory love for you, friend. Listen, he actually likes you. He sought you out. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again right now, and I'm going to remind you of it in the future, I'm sure. In Christ, God will not love you any less. And in Christ, God cannot love you anymore. You didn't do anything to earn his love, and you can't do anything to lose it. But in addition, you can't do anything to increase God's love. You know that? God's capacity for love is infinite because he's infinite. His capacity is infinite, and towards his people, it's full. It's full. That means God has infinite love. That means it never runs out. It never depletes. It's never exhausted. It's always pouring out for you for his church. Some fathers are men who are mean and angry, and so their kids, out of fear, avoid them or just try to be on their best behavior to make sure they don't blow up. Some fathers demand perfection or they have these weird subjective standards that they force their kids to meet in order for them to be accepted in the father's eyes. Some fathers are present but are largely uninterested Maybe nice guys, but just don't, don't care that much. Okay, some, some fathers are like that, but, but not this father. Not this father. No, God is not a father like that. He's not a father like that. God is a father who has pursued you in love and has poured all of it out on the cross, on his own son. God has pursued you in love and has poured all of his love out. Not that we might be fearful 
of him, scared that he's angry with us, not he has not given us some list of demands that we need to meet so we can be accepted by him. He is not just kind of here and deistic, but not really interested in what we're doing. No, he's, he's not like that at all. He's involved, he has pursued, he has sought, and he has poured out his love as a free gift. His love is not achieved, church, it is received. It is received. So what should our response be? Our response should be to love him back. Our response should be to love God back. God has given us this love. What ought we to do? We love him back. We love him back. We get to respond to God's word by loving him back. We get to respond to God's word and and sing to him as an expression of our love. We get to respond to God's word by taking communion and celebrating what we're talking about, what Jesus did for us. His love poured out on the cross, his body broken and his blood spilled for us. We get to respond in that way and love God back in that way and thank God in that way. That's what we get to do. And the other way we respond is we take what we've received and we give it to others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.20, the verse that Noah read, he says, we've received the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors of Christ. What that means is take what we've received and we give it to others. That's what we do as faithful ambassadors. If you're a non-Christian, you need to know this is what Jesus accomplished. And I'm just going to repeat what Paul says. I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Friends, be reconciled to God. Stop thinking you have more time. Stop thinking it's not important. Stop thinking you have Sin that you still want to do, I implore you on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. And friend, if that's you, we're here for you. We will pray for you, with you, over you. But don't don't keep fighting it. This is how God has loved us. Infinite lengths. This is how he loves you. And I would implore you to respond to God's love. Father God, thank you for loving us as you have. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die as our substitute savior. Jesus, thank you for being broken for us. Thank you for bleeding for us. Thank you for being cut off from the Father for us. Thank you for satisfying all of God's wrath for all of our sin. Thank you for buying us back from the clutches of sin and slavery. And thank you for bringing us into your family Your father becomes our father, and you become our good elder brother. Jesus, we ask that you'd help us to respond well in worship now. We love you. We thank you. We acknowledge you. We cherish you and treasure you in your good name. Amen.